Um, I hope that uh, by the time you leave tonight, you will be uh, invigorated to go out and go for long walks in green spaces, blue spaces and parks, because there is absolutely no doubt that there are many, many benefits that have to do with being more immersed in nature. Um, just, uh, just a little bit of evidence, uh, and when my, uh, when my talk gets uh, uploaded, you'll see there's more than 200 references that talk about this, about the fact that if you have even short-term exposure, let's say you, you go into a forest um, and just for a short walk, you'll immediately see, and we have very strong evidence that it reduces your stress, um, it certainly averts depression and avoids all kinds of problems vis-a-vis -vis children. So if you take children into a forest and they have attention disorders, you'll find that they actually are much, much calmer. And that has to do with all the volatile organic compounds that the trees essentially um, exude into the environment, into the air. I'm sure most of you know that if you undertake activities in, in outside, I'm not saying that gymnasiums are bad, but uh, certainly if you can do your activities outdoors, it has an absolutely quantifiable impact on your health in terms of both reducing obesity, which is, is obvious, but also reducing the likelihood of type 2 diabetes. So that's, that's clearly important. Um, but what's very, what's very interesting is that the long-term exposure, in other words, just simply day-to-day, -day, having that exposure has been shown to have both positive effects on respiratory but also on cardiovascular diseases. So this is all very good news. Even more important and very interestingly is that this exposure can work over long distances, between 5 and 150 kilometers. Now, it's different if you're living in an urban environment where you must feel sometimes that there are no green spaces and so forth. But they, the, the researchers that have done this work can see that if you visit a forest, even for a short time, you essentially bring that uh, exposure back with you, so to speak, into your home environment. More interesting, I think, is the prenatal and the childhood exposure. And we're beginning to see that, quite honestly, over your lifetime, that early childhood exposure has a long, long-term effect. A bit like I said in an earlier lecture about um, malnutrition, which stays with you for life, this is the same thing. And so we can see that not only does it help prevent the development of things like schizophrenia and depression and reduces this atopic sensitization and obesity, but it lasts, through to the lasts all the way through life. So nothing more important then than getting children out into, uh, out into green spaces, into playgrounds and so forth. So when we think about cities and when we think about where we live, there's a, there's a sort of handful of things that really we should be looking for. There's what we would call the urban blue. In other words, those spaces which have got water in them. And water in particular is extremely important because it regulates the local climate. So not only do you get that sense of um, refreshing air, but it in fact can help to reduce the amount of heat in heat islands and so forth. We know about city trees. I'm sure many of you are aware that if you live in a street with trees in it, that the air quality is certainly improved. The downside, of course, is that some of them have got allergenic pollen, and that might not be such a great thing if that's what you're susceptible to. So, of course, in planning terms, you need to really think about what it is that you put in place in people's, um, in people's ne how near houses and in their neighbourhoods. Um, interestingly, We've seen evidence that in school playgrounds, that children who go out into the playgrounds and are exposed to a whole range of soils and microbes, that that actually also improves the immune system of those children. And then there's a very well-known uh, process in Japan um, called Shinrin-yoku, which is where you go forest bathing. Um, the challenge with all of those uh, exercises, though, is that there's very little quantitative evidence but where there is evidence is that patients who have had cancer treatments and are then sent for convalescence into forest areas show far greater um, speed of recovery and long-term recovery than those who simply return to their home or don't have that kind of external um, input. So the evidence is very, very striking. Um, and then the question is, how does it work? What, what's actually happening inside? 
So we'll come to that in a moment, but I just want to step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture of how we treat health and, the, and where we're getting our benefits from, and whether or not that's really figured and factored into our healthcare system. And of course, the answer is almost certainly no. So when we look at the Sustainable Development Goals, and in particular, goal number two and number three, where we're talking about the interplay between hunger and then good health, there's very little said about that exposure to nature. In fact, the biophilia hypothesis is not really mentioned. It appears later on when you get to uh, the goals 14 and 15, particularly 15, life on land. But there's no connection between why we care about uh, deforestation apart from greenhouse gas emissions. So in fact, in the sustainable development goals, there isn't quite so much as you would expect for something that's supposed to be as integrated as possible. So if we think about good health and well-being, and we're thinking about building prosperous societies, it's really important that you, we recognize that there's been a huge amount of progress made on improving the health of millions of people. Um, we've got good records showing that maternal mortality is going down, that the total number of deaths of children under the age of five has also been dropping. It's quite a significant drop, 9.8 million down to 5.4 over nearly a 20-year period, and life expectancy continues to go up. But the challenge is that when there is a health emergency in any of the developing countries particularly, but also here, it can actually push a family or an individual into a kind of bankruptcy or poverty and into a crisis. And the question I would ask is, were those emergencies to be mitigated by living in a much closer um, relationship or much, with much more exposure to nature, would that mean that these periodic uh, moments when people in their lives sort of tumble over the edge, would they actually be reduced? Now, on the current stats, we have obviously every day fantastic things coming in. We have, you know, many fewer children are dying each day, but still five million children die before their fifth birthday. And most of that is in sub-Saharan Africa and Southern Asia. Vaccines are shown, of course, to be highly effective, um, we still have avoided malaria rates, and the incident rate is decreasing. But right now, progress on malaria, and to some extent tuberculosis, but mostly malaria, has stalled. And then we have these rather um, telling statistics that you know, children that are born in poverty are almost twice as likely to die before the age of five compared to those from wealthier families, and the mortality of mothers is much, much higher. So why is that when we see that children in many of these poor areas are living in rural areas and they, in principle, are exposed to nature, to biodiversity and to essentially what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is the evidence that exposure to nature gives great benefits to long-term health, particularly in children. So thinking back about how we run our health systems worldwide, we can have an enormous impact on immunization. If we were to really ramp up immunization, even now, we would still be able to save a lot of children. And here some of the figures show, you know, if you spent a billion, you'd be able to save a million children. Um, if you were to increase, for example, some of the income which would allow parents to spend more on healthcare, then that would also lead to a reduction in some of the non-communicable diseases. But still, those diseases alone will cost somewhere between 7 trillion and maybe upwards in the next 15 years. So these are enormous sums of money. The key, I think, lies in the last point. So even when you have mothers just completing primary school, they begin to see some of the factors that will allow the children to not only live a sort of very healthy and happy life, but to make sure that that is something which goes through the whole of their lives. And so these mothers who've actually had some basic schooling have children who are far more likely to survive than the ones of mothers who haven't. Now, I've been sort of looking into this, um, not just anecdotally, but in a more systematic way, to try to find out, well, what is it that mothers who've had primary schooling 
What, what is it that they understand that enables the children to survive? Well, there's the obvious ones, such as avoiding accidents, um, making sure that there's a lot, of, a lot more attention to sanitation, washing hands, and so forth. But what you also notice amongst mothers who have had some education is that the time spent, so to speak, actively in the environment is far more likely to happen with children compared to mothers who have not had schooling. And often you'll see that mothers who are sitting at home, sitting outside their hut or, or whatever, are unaware, for example, of simple things like breathing in the fumes from the fires inside the houses, um, drinking contaminated water and so on, the very basics. But I also notice that the way in which children play is very much shaped by what their mothers are actually doing around them. So um, getting children to go out further, for example, and, and to bring things back, to explore, to in, in a way to, to be much closer to nature than simply playing in the very close neighbourhood around where the house is. And this is absolutely true in urban environments. So if you see the difference of visitation rates to the local park, and where you have mothers who have had education and mothers who haven't, there's almost a twofold difference between the incidence of mothers taking their children to the park, mothers who have been, had, had some education, and mothers who haven't. So these are some very, very simple things that one could actually start to build in to the long-term health plans that would potentially help us with the sustainable development goals. So when we take that sort of much more deeply into our own lives, you know, what, what represents a good life? What does it mean to you and your family when you're trying to, you know, build a situation where you live well, your high quality of life as far as you're concerned, you flourish, you're thriving and so forth? The real question is, how much time do you allocate, if, if that's how you're organizing your life, to having that experience with nature, to being exposed, to essentially just taking a walk or simply recognizing the benefits of being closer to nature. So if you ask the question, do you think this is a place where everyone can have a good life and there are no green spaces or blue spaces? Well, in principle, the answer would be not as good as if there were. If you ask the question, do you think the quality of life and opportunities for people have got better or worse? One of the best measures is not so much how much money is in the bank, but it's how much green space, how much access there is to nature around where people live. So when you put that lens on prosperity, on good life, on life expectancy, for example, you begin to get a very different shape of what, in principle, we should be planning for our futures. Now, when we take those sorts of questions out around the world, and here's an example of a, of, um, a workshop in Tanzania, the answers that come back are dominated by health. So yes, of course, income and money, but house, health and education and community and environment are the things which really preoccupy communities more and more. And this is really very much the case in a lot of developing countries because the message is really coming through, certainly through schools and through education, that you can do a lot to make up for the lack of wealth by actually having this really intense local exposure to a very high-quality environment. So when we think about the calculus of a healthy life, normally what you would be given is life expectancy. And you can look up the tables, they come out every year. Um, countries such as Japan have an ever-increasing, even still until now, life expectancy. And obviously there are many countries where there are probably very poor environments and certainly very poor social infrastructure where life expectancies are hovering in the 50s, maybe the late 50s. So there's, in potential terms, 30 years difference between the countries that value that green space, value the exposure to nature, such as in Japan, and countries where it's really quite secondary to everyday living, such as the, um, the post-Soviet states. And the challenge, of course, in those is that the individuals, not only do they not have access to green spaces, blue spaces, but they're also then exposed to high levels of hazardous chemicals and to pollutants. So the net result, as I say, is something in the order of a 30-year difference. 
Now, that's quite a remarkable thing. If you consider that your population as an asset um, is something that's very important for a country, but even more important, these are real people. These are people in the community, they're in the family, and that's really what you want to be thinking about, is the regenerative and the long-term effects of what nature can provide, in a sense, for free. And that's, in a sense, the bottom line of this lecture. It's that when you really factor in the benefits that nature brings, and you think about the costs versus having to enter into long-term medical care, it really is one of the simplest calculus that you can do. So having um, ecological health coupled with social dynamics is probably one of the most important things that we can do when we're talking about um, the future of society, our futures and our prosperity and health. Secondarily, of course, we need to worry about consumption and how we make our way in the world and also the derived incomes and inequality and so forth and then the distributional fairness. But time and again, we come back to how important it is to have ecological health and to have ourselves very much part of that equation. Now, you know, this country and many others have got strong electoral promises. And when you do an analysis of what is promised during election campaigns, rarely do you see the environment. Maybe you see it now in the sense of climate change and the impacts that that will bring and so forth. But if you read very carefully most of the election manifestos of all the major parties around the world, very, very few of them ever talk about the benefits that nature brings. The major difference is in Latin America, where it's part of the very fabric of social and societal uh, developments. So let's just explore a little bit. Why is it so difficult for us to see human-nature relationships as part of the kind of common conversation that you would expect to be having. Because this is something that's really tantamount to saying that we're going to actually ask this population to have a life expectancy that's 30 years less, and we're going to empower this population to have a, a lifespan that might take them as high as, you know, on average, late 80s, early 90s. So we have a lot of wonderful um, inspired writing Jean-Jacques Rousseau, all the way through to people like um, Michael uh, Mann and others, who've written very, very carefully treatises within their own domain. So when we think about Rousseau and Hobbes, it's more about human nature. Human nature being, is it evil or is it good? How does it evolve? And so forth. But implicit in that is the relationship of human, man, in other words, with nature. But as we go through some of the other authors, for example, um, the book by um, Kate Pickett and, and Richard um, Wilkinson called The Spirit Level, there you can read about not just the impacts of inequality on human health, but also how that inequality starts to bite in in terms of the quality of housing, where people are living, the spaces in which they are exposed, and so forth. And as you go through whether it's Stiglitz or Amaritya Sen, um, John Rawls, and so on, you begin to see that all these different authors are reaching out for the very, very core of what this is saying, which is nature is, let's say, to all intents and purposes, a common good. It's a, it's a free good that we can use if we take care of it. And over the years, over the centuries, through different devices politically and economically, that exposure, that access to green space has been either excised, taken away, or restricted, or limited. And yet it's the very, very fabric of who we are. So some of these writers conclude very often, uh, for example, at the very end, um, Cormac McCullen, uh, Cullinan, he's written very much about wild law, saying that we need lawyers who will go to court and defend, for example, nature, defend the tree, defend the coastline. And when you read the legal cases, they're very much about the benefits that nature brings to not just one individual, not one family, not one community, but actually to the broader idea of society and humankind. So these are really important milestones in beginning to clarify in the West, and I I say that in the West because I'm going to come to a, a counter view um, of why it's so important that we pay attention to nature. 
Now, I've, I'm going to stress the point that we say nature, because in the West, we often talk about nature with a capital N, nature, as if we're not part of it. Now, Howard Gardner wrote something very interesting. It's a book on multiple intelligences, and one of them is called The Naturalist Intelligence. And this manifests itself particularly through young children who go into, the, go into nature, so to speak, and do quite remarkable things and respond in very remarkable ways. So he ran a series of experiments which really showed how close children are to the natural world uh, in terms of being very responsive to organisms, being very responsive in terms of organisms that are good for them and bad for them. So in a sense, they've yet to lose, they've yet to have a superficial veneer which essentially says, you know, don't touch that, don't touch that, don't get near that, don't put that in your mouth. And there is evidence, very strong evidence, and he, he speaks to it, that young children have an innate ability to really sense, particularly those that are close to nature, to really sense the things which are damaging to them or dangerous and the things which aren't. So this deep-rooted form called, natu called naturalist intelligence is something that we all have when we're first born. And in a way, we educate ourselves out of it, which is really sad. Um, if we look then at other cultures, so let's move out, let's say, to China. And we see over the centuries, repeatedly, these beautiful ink drawings and paintings and so on of landscapes, generally devoid of people, where the true sense of naturalism is about humanity not standing apart from nature, but is actually just fully part of it. There are no sharp divisions, and yet what, what we're seeing through the paintings is these vast landscapes, and quite often you'll see a small, a small person just wandering through the landscape. But the most crucial thing is that there is no sharp division between heaven the mind, spirit, and earth. In other words, the phenomena flow into one. So if you just stop to think about that, that's a very, very different worldview. It's a very different cultural take on nature. Because if you don't set yourself apart from nature, if you're part of it, um, and, and you've never been separate, then you'll have a very different sense of responsibility. You'll have a very different sense of when you reach out to nature for help, and when you might actually do something to protect it. If we carry on then into the, into the main body of what uh, has really been the cultural traditions in China, you've got Confucianism and Taoism. In a way, these are continuously coming back, living in harmony, um, going with the flow, as they say, like water. And, and it's profoundly that nothing is too separate. It's not like yin and yang being separately. These are just two sides of the same thing. Now, imagine that um, you're stepping back in time and you're having a conversation about a beautiful part of the world, one of the ones that's been painted. What I would suspect would have happened in, th in the 14th century wouldn't have been a conversation about, oh, now we need to protect this, we now need to conserve it from marauding hordes from the north. No, 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 it would be... We're all part of this. It's not about us and them and about protecting bits of nature. So it's a very, very different kind of deep conversation about what you protect and, and what you see you need to protect. So this is none more so than when you go to Australia and have a conversation with Aboriginal um, Indigenous peoples. Because the extreme position in a way which might feel very uncomfortable for people in the West and in, developing in developed countries is that they don't really think that the environment needs any special attention because it is just nature. That is what it is. And, you know, you sometimes uh, imagine, and I read a short story recently where, you know, there's someone, one of them throws a beer can out of the window which is not seen as anything odd because a beer can is just another part of nature. It might feel very artificial to us, but when it's out of the window, and it's, it's just another part of the natural world. So what's waste and what's belonging where it should is part of the conversation about how we should treat nature in future. So when we come to, to Japanese cultures, it's very, very similar. You know, these beautiful scrolls of landscapes and so on, occasionally a few people in the landscapes and so on. 
But if you speak to Japanese colleagues, who are now, by the way, absolutely seized with the idea of making sure that you know, the waste is recycled, the circular economy, and so forth, and they have special words for that, the whole thinking is not so much that it's bad to have waste in the environment, but that what the waste in the environment does is it reduces the purity of that particular piece of the environment, so that we're going to put this piece of waste over here with all the other bits of waste that are like it. So it's not so much that this piece of waste is going to damage, it's just it doesn't fit in the purity of this particular part of the environment. So that's really quite different than the way, for example, we, we treat fly tipping in this country. We want to get it out of the way because it's an eyesore, and we actually think that some of the chemicals going into the water will contaminate drinking water, probably all kinds of other things. So we have a kind of scientific logic and a Western way of thinking about it which has very little to do with the purity of the, the essence of the nature that we're looking at. And that's because we don't look to nature on the whole for the benefits that it gives us from a health perspective. So if you're generally looking then across the world and looking for inspiration as to where most of the understanding has come about how beneficial health is, to uh, how, how beneficial nature is to our health, what you see is this ubiquity of nature in Asia and in Australasia. You see that there's no distinction, nothing artificial. Even plastic has a place. If you then think about the places where they're particularly beautiful, um, and in Japanese culture you would imagine, for example, the beautiful um, cherry trees, cherry blossoms. In fact, they're planted but they have become part of a whole um, sense in which there's a landscape which is pure and is maintained, but they used to be plum trees. So at one point, somebody intervened and actually decided that there were going to be plum trees. So, just, so the, whole, the whole way in which the landscape and interactions in nature is far more orchestrated than, in a sense, we do here, where we leave it very much as a wild space, but we don't really think about the benefits of what that will bring us. So when we want to think about nature, in a, in a sense, as a really positive uh, source of benefits for health, but also potentially for medicines, nature is virtually untapped, if you think about today's pharmaceuticals. Now, over obviously many, many thousands of years, we've seen what I would call the ancient medicine cabinets. And here are some uh, people from the tribe where I am in the Maasai, and the Masai Mara, and the men particularly are gathering herbs from medicinal trees. They're combining them in particular ways for particular reasons. So for a ceremony, there will be some particular plants put together, but for particular health reasons, there will be other combinations. And you would ask the question, well, how repeatable is it? Is it reliable? Can you, can you do it? When, and my answer would have to be, almost across the board, in fact, it works. Because when I then go into the forest with the warriors and stand next to them, and they will identify maybe up to 250 medicinal trees, and they'll be saying, we use the leaves for this, we use the bark, we use the roots, we use the fruit for all these different purposes. And then we mix it with this and we mix it with that. And then I'll look at the same trees as a biochemist and realize, in fact, that what they have done is they've nicely classified these trees with the same biochemical properties, with the same active molecules. So you might say this has been a very long experiment, but nevertheless, uh, it's quite clear that when we look at the active molecules across the whole raft of these trees, they do actually match up with some of the many, well, many of the ex exploratory um, and pilot studies that have been done by pharmaceutical companies. So you might ask the question, well, why aren't they? Why aren't they in the marketplace? And there's a really mixed message that comes from this. So here we know that people, of course, they do still die of malaria, um, but there are very, very low incidences of things like cardiovascular disease of diabetes, of cancer, and so forth. Very, very low. And these herbs and these medicines are taken in a therapeutic way and, and in a preventative way. In other words, they're part of the daily life. They go into milk, 
they're taken. And then, of course, if someone gets very sick, things will be done in a much more concentrated way. So one of the examples where a plant was plucked, so to speak, out of the, out of the cornucopia of medicinal uh, plants is this artemisinin. And there's a very interesting story because clearly it's been used for a long time. Sweet wormwood has been known as a cure or at least um, an efficient way of dealing with malaria. And it's widespread in China, in India, in Africa. It's in many, many places. But what happened was the, the sort of the, 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 I guess the discovery of it was when the chloroquinone was beginning to fail. So after the, after the big push of industrial chemists and pharmaceuticals were putting chloroquinone and related um, uh, drugs onto the market and they were beginning to not be as effective, one of the, one of the students here, 2U2, she went back and screened then thousands of Chinese herbal medicines, looked through the books and so on and so forth. And she actually then went ahead and produced extracts from over 300 of them. And using those, she effectively went back to what many, many indigenous peoples had known, which was that the, the basic uh, active molecules in the plant were the ones that were effectively helping the combined therapies. Uh, they were helping the therapies that, were, that had been done um, over the previous 10, 20 years. Now... What then happened was a very pure version of artemisinin was, was put onto the market. And the WHO did something rather interesting. They sort of backed off the fact that this was a, a one drug, a one um, item drug. And I guess in a sense, they began to really question whether a non-pharmaceutical form was effective and raised questions like, well, if you use this non-pharmaceutical form, you'll begin to lose its efficacy. And my question to the WHO at the time was, but if people have been doing this for thousands of years and they've not yet produced um, malarial, uh, the, the, the vectors that become immune, then this doesn't really seem to make sense. And so you begin to wonder about this combined therapy, which is a, a, a chloroquinone together with artemisinin. But nevertheless, that's the one that the WHO promotes. Meanwhile, back in sort of Africa and India and other places, we continue to use the artemisinin. And in a sort of very simple way, you can really tell the difference between the communities that have got onto the conveyor belt of the combined therapeutics and the communities where there is literally just the, the plant itself and that's what's being used. Now, the plant is rarely used in isolation. It's usually put into a mixture. There are other things that go in with it. Um, and in a way, it would be very hard to say how many of the other active molecules are the ones that are helping. But nevertheless, you can go to communities which have never had access to the combined therapeutic form. They've only had access to the naturally um, curated, so to speak, therapy. And what you find interestingly, is in those populations, particularly in the young adults, that the incidence of malaria is very, very low. Whereas in the population which is using the, the ACT, the combined therapeutics, malaria is persistent. So I, I leave that with you as a question because it would, it would appear to me at this stage that the way in which the therapeutic drugs are being prepared although it somehow regulates the amount of active molecule that is delivered through the tablet to the patient, that there are other things that are in the plant itself, in the sweet wormwood, beyond the active molecule that's been extracted, that are perhaps unknown as yet to the pharmaceutical industry, which are giving additional ability to combat malaria. And as a result of that, there are some groups that are now using it and screening for cancers. Now, why is that? Well, it's primarily because it collates iron. And this is one of those side effects which is very important. And if you look at most cancer drugs, that's one of the things that they do. They collate iron. So this particular plant also does that. And just that mere piece of information tells you that in the kind of medicinal 
cabinets of these uh, different trees and plants that we're calling the traditional medicine, um, the cabinet of traditional medicines. There are many, many things we have yet to screen. Another one is the Madagascan periwinkle. Um, it's actually very poisonous, and it has all kinds of alkaloids in it. And this one really is used in a, in a very direct way for treatment of leukemia. It has um, a, whole, a whole range of phytochemicals. Um, and as it says, although the sap's poisonous if ingested, it's got 70 useful alkaloids. Now, I use it in the village a lot when, for example, I have ladies who, have, who are pregnant and who have tonsillitis. So you don't want to give them an antibiotic, but on the other hand, they're really feeling pretty ropey. If they chew this, if they chew the, the stem, um, within about eight hours, they don't have tonsillitis anymore. It's quite interesting. So, you know, you, you, you can see that there are many other things with this plant in particular that you kind of have reason to believe that it's worth doing a lot more work with it. But we do know that this particular plant has, for hundreds of years, as it says here, been used for many things like diabetes, um, tranquilizers, blood pressure, and so on. But now, a group of scientists are taking it very, very seriously and taking it into the lab to look at its impact on things like Hodgkin's disease, um, glastomas, and, and so on, particularly cancers of the breast and the cervix. And what they're saying is that these are extremely powerful. But they can't tell whether it's one particular alkaloid as we've said here, the vinblastine or the, or the vincristine, or whether it's this mixture of alkaloids that's really creating the, the impact that the plants have. So what's going to be in our future medicine cabinets? Um, when we go into a forest, and, and as I say, there's a particular treatment that the Japanese use, and it's wonderful, you go for these forest baths, and you know, you, you essentially are inhaling these incredible tertiary products, terpenoids and many other things. I mean, that, that's what the smell of a coniferous forest is. You you realize that, you know, not only do you get a sense of well-being and that it stays with you, but actually plants and, and trees are very, very powerful. None more so than some of the ones that are on this list. And I'll quickly go through them. But just to say. Already we detect, in comparison with some of the collections that have been made like 20, 30 years ago, that these plants are becoming even more concentrated because of climate change. So whereas the doses maybe 20 years ago were, were so let's say, one, one mil, then now you have to be very careful because that's probably almost increased by one order of magnitude. So these plants are actually adapting to climate change, to the drought conditions, and so forth. So I've had to be saying, I'm saying to many of the, the LIBON, the medicine people, we have to be really careful about this, because in a sense, what we don't want to do is you know, kill off people because the medicines are too strong. So um, I'll just pick out a couple. Uh, there is one halfway down, which, where is it? Acocanthera shrimp eye. So it's called the poison arrow tree. So that gives you a very good indication of what it's used for. So it's used to make poisons, uh, plus some other things that go on the arrows, which you use if you're going out to, to walk through the bush. So it's a, it's, a very important, it's a very important concoction. And if only two people kind of in the village or in the tribe are allowed to mix it because it is so, so dangerous. I happen to have some, which I had in my house, and I had to go away, and I left it in my house, and there were some fruits there as well. So when I came back three weeks, uh, two weeks later, not only was the, the, obviously they were dried out, but every single insect in my house had died. So this is a natural insecticide. Absolutely no problem on that one. So, so tick the box on that. Very, very interesting. But I want to share with you um, a rather sort of not, not a very nice story about scientists, actually, which happened to a colleague of mine. So he picked some of the material from a relative of this tree and was not able to do any kind of analysis in the laboratory. He didn't have a laboratory that was good enough. So he had been in communication with colleagues in the US and asked them if they would be kind enough to do the screening for the active molecule. The first thing he knew was that they, 
effectively cut him out of the, of the results. They essentially, because he, as he said, he didn't know, he was very naive, and so he'd sent them information about the, the species and so forth, and they obviously did the analysis, but they just refused to share it. And the next thing was, it was in a product being developed and manufactured and sold. So he learned his lesson, and he, but he thought, well, I'll, I'll try again, so, but not with the same laboratory. So he sent another plant, but this time he was smarter. He didn't tell them the species. He just sent A, B, C, and D. And off he sent it. And very quickly, about two or three weeks later, the laboratory comes back and says, well, we know what's A, and we know what's B, and we know what's E, or whatever it was, D, but you need to tell us what C is, you see. And so he said, well, why? And he said, well, it's a very, very interesting molecule, and we want to know the name of it. And um, so he said, well, mm, I'd rather not do that, actually, because, you know, I'd like to work with you and collaborate. And they basically said, well, if you don't tell us the species, we won't tell you the molecule. These are grown-up people in laboratories. Um, and you would think at this stage, you know, the greater good of humanity and so on. No, 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 forget that, you see. So it's a very, very difficult way that we now have to work. Um, but nevertheless, what we had decided in long talks with, with the tribe and with um, many of the warriors up in another big forest, the Mao Forest, which is a very politically sensitive one, where we're finding so, so, so many medicinal tree species, new ones as well, um, which, which the old Ugyik tribe know about. So this list is probably about twice as long, is that we are now absolutely going to make these a global good. Because in a sense, and this is one of the wonderful things about working um, in a tribal setting, they see that being part of nature is just an expression of how they should deal with this surrounding set of wonderful plants that they use. And that in a way, it's not really theirs to keep away from other people. Now, you might say that's very naive. And of course, we will try very hard to make sure that the community gets benefits, that we'll grow the plants in a careful way, and they'll be able to be paid for the harvesting and so on and so forth. But it's very deeply held that these are these belong to people, to humanity, to, to they're part of nature and they belong to everybody. And that's why it is so shocking sometimes that when I see what's happening with some of the countries that are coming to Africa, that they have little regard for, in a sense, that prior informed consent, or even the fact that this germplasm belongs to everyone and should not necessarily be carved off into proprietary products. So the idea is to take these species and the new ones that we've got and run them through the screening test to actually determine which ones we'll back for particular, uh, for particular drugs or for particular medicines. Uh, and it may be, I hope, that in some time soon, um, one of these, which is a very important one and one that's not on the list there, which is really, it's called the insulin plant, um, may be something that people with diabetes could have in the form of chewing gum instead of having to have, uh, have a needle injection. So we'll see what happens. But I think it's, it's fascinating, the difference between the approach to the natural world dominating the conversation about how the goodness of this medicinal cupboard, so to speak, cabinet, is going to be made possible in the future. Now, the other place which is absolutely teeming, I can put that quite honestly, teeming with um, uh, medicines and potential and of potential benefits is in coral reefs. So coral reefs spend a long time essentially repelling either the same species or others because they can't move and they want to stop encroachment. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen a film of some corals, essentially. They're able to shoot out venomous points to each other and you know they retreat and then they start again. So these things are, it's like warfare on the, on the rocks. Very slow, I have to tell you, but anyway, off they go. Um, but amongst all of those, and particularly because some of them are quite toxic, toxic, they're very, very useful for attacking certain diseases, in particular cancers. But interestingly, there are doctors already using corals for creating uh, different things in terms of re reconstructive surgery and as substrates for new bone. 
And these corals, the, the corals that are used, turn out to be far, far, far more uh, robust and resilient than any man-made artificial product. And it again comes back to there's so much that we don't really know about these biological materials that um, in, a, in a way it's almost just the tip of the iceberg that we use it for um, an infrastructure, for, a for its physical property, when in fact it probably has many other properties that will help um, to, to help recovery. But right now, there are already medicines in the pipeline, so to speak, for treating obviously cancer, arthritis, um, ba bacterial infections, Alzheimer's, and so forth. And so when you see on the television things like Our Planet and you see the demise of coral reefs, it's not just about climate change and the impact on fisheries and the impacts that it has on things like shoreline defences. This genuinely is a place where we will find many, many medicines that we will be able to benefit from if we can keep our coral reefs alive in the future. So there's a really, really big reason to, uh, to maintain them and to sustain them and make sure they flourish. So coming back to people and people's relationships with nature. So many indigenous peoples have a kind of intensity of interaction with nature. So it goes far beyond just simply being and walking around in nature. It's much deeper than that, as I'm sure you all realize. So, for example, on the right-hand side, um, the, the Inuit hunter who's there, he has just shot a seal. He's got out of his boat. And, but before he does anything, he, kind of does a, he says a prayer over the seal. In other words, thanking that he's got this animal and he'll be able to feed his family, be able to feed the dogs and so forth. And it's a very, very, it's, I mean, it's a very powerful picture. It was taken by a colleague of mine who won a, who won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And, but what he captures is just that single moment when you see how the whole of nature is coming together. You know, he's actually on an ice flow, which is part of the melting of the Greenland ice flows that are coming down off the ice cap. So that's a very sorry story in its own right. A seal that has, in a way, just about survived, but has now become part of the, the food and the resource for the family. And the hunter himself, who faces a very bleak future in terms of his environment, of being able to continue living in the way that he has. And that, in a way, is all encapsulated in this picture, which I think captures the relationship of his connectedness with nature. And then on the other side is, is some of the members of my tribe um, and their relationship with nature, which is as much about social cohesion, um, about perceptions of risk. If you live in a very risky environment, what do you do and where do you go? But that fundamental thinking that if you are separated from nature, you're somehow separated from yourself, your community, and, and everything else, which is why many... Many of the Maasai tribe and other tribes feel very uncomfortable going into cities. It's, it's less about, they don't like the concrete and all the noise and all the, uh, and all the pollution, but they actually don't like that separation. You know, where's the grass? Where are the cattle? Where's, where, where are all the plants? And the social cohesion can be brought back. So we, there are some very large programs called Healthy Parks, Healthy People. I don't like the title insofar as it implies that parks and people are separate, so it continues to reinforce the idea in the West that people are separate from nature. But if you just think about what they're able to document, this is in the States, in America. So they've been monitoring people going into the national parks and finding you know, a 30-minute walk in nature. When people are coming back, They've had their hearts measured, their, their heart rates measured, their, their circulation, they've had cholesterol measures, and so on and so forth. And all of these things happen with just a 30-minute walk. Um, just 20 minutes for children improves their concentration and reduces their need for medication for attention disorders. And of course, the whole thing about it becoming very seductive and wanting to go back, that's the very, very deepest core in the brain, which talks to what drives and motivates us. It has to do with all of the hormonal controls and this sense of this is where the addiction comes from, the idea that 
once you have that pattern in your life and you experience all of the health benefits, actually what you want to do, you become addicted to it very quickly and you want to go back and have more and have more. And so when you say, you know, living as part of nature, you know, interacting with green spaces is not only good for you, but it's actually very good because of the way in which you interact socially, um, which has great impacts on dementia and so forth. Listening to bird songs, very, very simple things that you can do. Observing animals has the same thing. Immediately gets rid of fatigue. And even the natural aromas, as I said, coming from wood and plants can change your whole mental status. Now, these are, as I say, these are not just simply um, anecdotal. There's a huge body of evidence that's growing and growing and growing. But what we can't say, and I think it's, it's kind of interesting, is wouldn't it be amazing if we were so perceptive in a sensory way that we were able to literally follow our nose and be able to walk into a place, a forest, and know precisely, you know, which are the plants that our body is craving, or which are the which are the which is the food, which is the which is the environment in which we need to find ourselves. Now, these ladies in Benin, they actually do precisely that. They're able to, in a sense, smell the plants and home in on particular sort of healing plants that they need not just for themselves, but for others in the village. And so once a week, they go into this sacred forest and they collect those plants and create a, a sort of a, a lovely medical chain where people come and, um, and they even accompany them into the forest and they'll place a person who's, fa who's suffering from some ailment or another. They'll actually take them into the forest and place them next to the plant to inhale, for example, some of the volatile organic compounds. They don't know they're called that, but I mean, that, that's essentially what they're doing. So I'll leave you with this thought that obviously the more time you spend in nature, the better it is. Fantastic, even if it's cold. Um, but knowing that you can rely on your senses a lot more than perhaps you do, uh, and that really, particularly children, are extremely open to which are the places and which are the plants and where they need to go. And, and letting children explore in nature will set them up for the rest of their lives and genuinely will put them on a different health pathway, which in the end will not only save our national health system, but will probably save a lot more people so they live a lot longer. Thank you. Thank you.